to Mastering Retention, presented by UserWise. Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of the Mastering Retention podcast. I'm really thrilled to be here with uh, Peter Pollan, uh, who is currently Chief Product Officer at Superhuge Studios. So again, I'm Tom Hammond, your host, uh, co-founder of UserWise. Really excited to, to dive in today. You know, Peter, I, I talk to a lot of people in product, game designers, product managers, et cetera, as that tends to be the focus of our audience. But it's rare that I actually get to talk to like a true founder and stuff. So I'm, I'm really excited to, to dive into that. And, you know, not only are we going to be able to go into the details, but we can kind of take some of those high level type things too, uh, which I think right. is going to be super exciting. But before we do any of that stuff, uh, I always like to ask how did you get into games? Like, how did you get here? What's your story? Right. So um, I've been making games since I was 11. The first time I got uh, a computer to play with. So uh, that was a really ancient um, computer with a black and white screen, you know, a DOS interface, four and a half inch floppy drives. You had to load your OS from your floppy and then you had to load your game from another floppy. And we were doing coding on basic. Like it was literally QBasic <laughs> back then. And it really hooked me up. Like the thing is, I loved coding at that point. And the thing was, uh, I loved making uh, really interactive stuff and writing code, not, not just to solve utilitarian problems, but to entertain. That was like really awesome for me. That was, as far as I was concerned, that was a never ending funnel through which I could just, it's just, uh, you know what? It's that, uh, it's that uh, endless uh, rabbit hole that I got into. And uh, I've been making uh, games professionally for about 12 years now. I've been in roles where I'm in the leadership position, like either being a founder, a producer, product manager, or you know, game director. I've been doing that for at least eight years now. And that is where I do my best work because I, I tend to go very horizontal. I entered the industry as an engineer. I've done design. I've been a product analyst. I've been an artist. Uh, so a lot of things that all combine together. So I think I'm the opposite of what a specialist is. I love to you know have my hand in all the all the cookie jars and uh and it's fun that way so yeah that's that's how i got into it i'm a gamer i i still play a lot i don't think that will ever change and uh the beauty is that you know as a game developer we have solving complex complex problems like we are not solving problems that are easily defined we are solving psychological problems and like temporal problems like i'm bored i don't feel motivated i'm kind of lost right now i don't know what to do and, oh, I'm frustrated, I need to calm down. These are the problems that we solve, right? And in a way, we are making digital, you know, addictive drugs. And uh, that is not an easy proposition. It requires empathizing with players, understanding human psychology, understanding how interactive entertainment really works. You have to be an entertainer in your core. Your personality have to be an empathetic, entertaining sort of a person who always is worried about are, are people bored which i do and it's really annoying for my wife <laughs> <laughs> so yeah and i think uh, my my mind was just built this way and i would be uh, i i believe i'm a decent game maker i would be a really shitty anything else so <laughs> that's how i became a game developer well that's cool that's a great story yeah and uh most recently you were working at super gaming right yeah that was a great experience yeah, uh, I really I like, for that. It, it's an amazing thing. 
I think we might have just started working with them on UserWise. So that's fun, fun stuff there. And then, um, mm-hmm. and then you've now kind of made the switch over to Zarpy and and then uh, kind of renamed to Super Huge Studios. So like, how did that kind of? Have you always kind of had the entrepreneurial drive, or yeah, what's the yeah. what's the super huge story? <laughs> so it was bound to happen. I made my game <laughs> studio about nine years ago, and we ran it at a at profit for like two and a half years. But what went wrong with that was that my ambition was too small. Right? I was working at another startup, and I kind of realized that I could do better than this startup is doing. I could maybe just break off on my own and see where it goes. And I just went off as an indie, hired some of my friends, trained them, and we became this, uh, uh, it wasn't a game dev team as much as it was, we behaved like we were a rock band. So, <laughs> <laughs> so we had, we were young and we were making stupid mistakes, but we were still making money. We were profitable. We would just show up to office and be like, you know what, you know what we're doing? Beer and beach. Like that's what it is. And we just leave. Like, <laughs> we were the most uh, professional bunch. And we, we worked like that for two and a half years. It was a lot of fun. But then the thing is within the first six months, I achieved what I wanted to do. I did better than the startup I left. And the thing is then uh, we I didn't have an ulterior motive. I did not want to conquer the world. And we were young people. We just wanted to have fun and make the games that we love to play. And it was a bonus that there were publishers willing to pay money for it and distri- distribute it for us. But what happened was that after two and a half years of doing that, it became a little grindy and, and uh, we kind of uh, had disagreements and went our separate ways. The company didn't shut down. We broke up basically so uh like a, a band typical band. rock band yeah you're right <laughs> <laughs> and then i realized like i went into the mainstream i learned from some really strong people i had a short but really productive uh, stint at moonfrog where i learned from mark skaggs um, he's the guy who made farmville he was the vp of games at zynga worldwide and it was an amazing learning experience i've had uh i've had the opportunity to learn from some of the greatest you know game makers in the world and i was thinking like yeah I'll go back to this, right? Uh, go back to building a game studio, but at the right time. And I was like, you know, it, it was coming through. I, I was thinking it would be more like 10 years before I do one again. And then the right people and the right kind of funding and the right kind of thought process just fell into place. And it was just a Tetris uh, thing built up and you just need a long, uh, you know, piece to fall in. And I was the long piece and I couldn't say you. <laughs> I couldn't say no. And everything was perfect. What It had the right people. They had the right mindset. And uh, so I just jumped. I relocated yeah. to Bangalore and just, I had Joshi. I had worked with Joshi. Joshi is one of the uh, oldest game developers in India. Uh, he's been in the scene since the, there has been an Indian game development scene. <laughs> and he called me up and he said like, hey, I'm making this company. These, these are the things I've got this funding. And the first guy I'm calling is you. And I'm like, okay, I'm coming over. So I just relocated. <laughs> <laughs> just relocated 1,500 kilometers and <laughs> went in and like, uh, it was like two, three months to set up the company to set up everything. I've hired a team now. We have been in production for a month. We've been in pre-production. Everything together, we've been working for two, two and a half months now. So yeah. everything is coming together. That's awesome. Yeah. It's kind of like what they say, you know, when you're offered a seat on the rocket ship, you don't really... Yeah. Yeah, you yeah. just kind of get on. Right? It <laughs> doesn't matter. Like it's, it's now or like now, and you just go. And when the right thing comes along, right, you just know. You just know that you have to be on, strapped in for this one. You cannot say no to this. And then there's no. It's like your gut feel, your heart, your brain, everything screams yes. No. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Cool. Well, what kind of games are you guys making? You know, oh, is yeah. it, so, or, I don't know how much you can talk about, but can you, can you give us like a, a genre or, you know, yeah. 
I, I could give you hints. Uh, see, the thing is, it's a little too early uh, to talk about it. But once we have something to show, we'll be like, you know, we'll be beating down your door to talk about it. But uh, what I can what I can tell about uh, uh, what we kind of saw was that, you know, uh, there are some uh, game mechanics that we all grew up with, right? Some, th- some things that are very popular, some things that are like, you know, sitting in the back of our brains. Uh, in, the, in, the, in the, you know, if your, uh, if your uh, memory was a drawer, if it was a wardrobe, it's at the bottom. Like it's, mm-hmm. it smells like mothballs, right? All these things are there. Nobody has talked about it. Nobody has done these things on mobile yet, right? It's not being put out in the right, right format in the free-to-play format yet. So we are rediscovering those. We are seeing which ones uh, pull people back in, uh, which ones have that nostalgic feel-good you know, uh, vibe about it and uh, trying to bring it to a massive audience and uh, surrounding it with a social system uh, and as uh, a social feature so that you know you can uh, revive all these things and play with your friends all over again and fall in love with all these uh, games from your childhood once more again so yeah. uh, sometimes like you know uh, max kang once told me that uh, you know the as game designers our biggest challenge is to make things that nobody has seen before but which are very familiar right mm-hmm. so that is what we are going for right these are things that nobody has seen before extremely innovative but you have already seen this like you're very familiar <laughs> right it's from your childhood it's an old friend peter are you telling me you're gonna make me my diablo 2 on mobile <laughs> and <they get> to... <laughs> It's gonna be casual games. It's gonna be casual games. It's gonna be uh, uh, games with huge stamps, like uh, no, a wide appeal. That's what we're going for. Uh, that's all I can say. It's gonna be casual games, <laughs> and it's gonna that's be cool. Games. So something that I think would be really fun to do with you, uh, if you're able. Um, I think a lot of people, especially like newer folks in the industries or or people that go out and they want to kind of start their own company. I think a lot of people don't fully realize all of the tech and the product and things that actually are needed to be able to drive, like not only build, but to then manage and like run a game. I'm curious, like, could we just spend a little time like going through, okay, so like if I want to make a new casual game studio, starting from scratch, like what are the different types of things that I would need and why would I need those things? Right, right. Uh, let me first talk about how it can go wrong, right? A lot of uh, people who are you know, doing this for the first time or doesn't have much experience doing this, uh, like building a company and building a product and make it making it profitable is a little bit more complex than just building a game, right? So uh, what I've seen is that people tend to uh, work, start working on things that stress them out the most, right? So whatever has the highest risk of failure, they just start working on that. So when you're starting out and you're hiring a team for the first time, you tend to hire like, you know, designers and engineers first. And you're like, you know, can we get this first person shooter or like, you know, can we get this uh, racing game to work, right? Can we have cars running? How big can the maps be, right? Can we do good frames on a phone, right? Will it work on 1GB RAM phones and all? And you're worrying about the uh, engineering stuff first. And then you realize like, you know, oh yeah, now it works, right? How do you make it fun, right? That's the second problem, like the design problem. You're worrying about core mechanics and like core game design now. And then now that you've figured out uh, how to make it fun, you got some decent D1, right? Now you start worrying about, okay, how do we turn this into something that has, you know, a 15 D30, right? Uh, how do we get players to retain? Now we are working on meta design. And then at the end of that, if, and when you figure that out, then you're like, how do we make it profitable? The thing is, you should go in the opposite direction. You should start with the business plan, right? You should look at, okay, what is your audience? Okay, what are the CPIs there? What are the kind of competition there? Uh, you're making a racing game. 
who is your target market what is your competition what are the kind of business practices they are doing and how do you compete with them how is your product going to be different from that and what are you selling in your game and what kind of ltv are you projecting for this right and you figure this out you come up with a business plan at least make a you know lean canvas so that you know where you stand in the you know in the market and once you have this then you do game design right you figure out like what is your audiences uh, you know aspirations like what what really hooks them in and figure out what your meta layers are going to be right and then you once you know that you know the core game design is like uh, automatic like it, all of this will inform what the core game should feel like and then you get a engineer to sit down and be like okay what are, is the technical stuff that we're going to figure out like this is what we want uh, we need a maps to be this big we're making a rally game so every race should be at least 3 minutes long so that means that we have to do this does unity work do we uh, buy some like you know but you know in practicality whatever they stressed out about first is what they handle first so that is a problem like it, it is very helpful to just stand back look at this entire thing and go about it in the right order so when you do that you suddenly realize a few things that you will never get to otherwise couple of things is like when you do once you do fin- uh, like you know finish building the product out you need to have live ops and all that you start talk- thinking about it and talking about it right on day zero once you have this you start talking about monetization right on day zero which is very good practice to have another thing is you need analytics you need uh, attribution you need user acquisition right and you start talking about from day zero otherwise and if you don't follow the straight process and you start with engineering right you're going to be starting to talk about this in you know day 365 when you have something that kind of runs and then you realize you sit down with the engineers and be like oh we don't have anything we can sell in the game because we structure our economy this way how much is it going to cost to like break this entire thing down and rebuild the you know meta layers in the way this guy just proposed and they're like another 3 months and we have a game that's like you know live already so we have that behemoth problem you built something too big and it's too expensive to change things so now you're stuck with it right i've seen this happen a lot because uh, there, there's no forethought they hadn't planned out the entire business first and they just built it and you know what when i was in india i did the exact same thing right so i just like <laughs> want to make a physics puzzle and i'm like i want to see things exploding on day 3 of development right <laughs> so like, let's make this happen and the thing is once you once the stress goes away and you know that the game is fun you should be able to call it a uh, gameplay prototype stop and just step back and be like okay let's figure out the business and go about it the right way a lot of people just jump in and start coding the core gameplay just to be confident that it's going to be fun and it's going to work it's okay like but at some point you have to call it okay that's the gameplay prototype we have proven that the gameplay is fun now let's produce it the right way mm. i think I that, that one thing can make a lot of difference so a couple questions which i've actually gotten before and i'm curious how you would answer them so the first <laughs> one uh start with that kind of competitor analysis and like what's going on what's the landscape look like you know what is my cpi likely going to be what sort of ltv do i need to be shooting for so that that's cool but do you have any like tips or tricks of how can i identify like if i'm making a casual game that's going to compete with candy crush you know how can i figure out what their cpi is and is there any way that i can figure out like roughly what their ltv is obviously the information is proprietary yeah. within their company uh, but could, like are there rough ways 
you could go to app and you could go to uh, sensor tower and you know get their estimates on what it's going to be but then it's a crap shoot you really don't know right the only way to really know is to run a test uh, ua campaign and see what those prices are going to be so the thing is you know when you talk about running a test ua campaign you're thinking like oh that's after the product comes out right you don't need anything you just need a bunch of screenshots of ui mockups and you set up um, um, you know a uh, on google play you set up an app and uh, set it up for a pre register and like now you run those ua campaigns and see what's the click through rate for the kind of you know screenshots that you made right and then you can play around with the screenshots you can change the features that are exposed in the screenshot you can change the art style and run different campaigns and ab test them against each other so mm. without building the game without writing a single line of code with just uh, visual mockups of what the game is going to be you can basically ab test the value proposition with your target users and see which ones that they are attracted to which ones uh, get them to click on uh, like which ones get better ctrs and better conversions on the pre register and then what you can do is you can also figure out what is your what is your awesome target market going to be like you know that you're competing with these guys but you get to you now when you run these uh, decision campaigns you get to fine tune your uh, targeting and uh, you get a lot of information about you know which kind of groups have will give you the best ctrs for the kind of value proposition that you put out and what happens is that this kind of informs your business plan data right because you keep iterating on your business plan until, and after you've done uh, done this you do spend a lot of money like getting this getting these free rigid but it tells you what product to me so yep. in that sense it's like proper roi at the end of the day there is definitely proper roi uh in contrast i've seen some indian game studios where they like built the entire product out there's no mtp there is no mvp they just put the full thing out and then do they do acquisition and then they realize okay there's no product market fit like we made this for the women but the women want something else and then they're like who else could play this because it's a behemoth and it's too late to change things yeah so uh, we can completely avoid that you can start testing a product even before you start building the product that's really good i like that a lot and that that would give you information about the cpi also of course Right, because you are running it costs money to get that information but that expensive information is actually valid i remember one time somebody was telling me they could do something like well if you can just get the the video that whatever game you want let's say candy crush in this sense and then you can set that up as like a facebook campaign just point it to their actual url um does that work as like a, a way to figure out like what sort of rough cpi they're getting i've not done that yet but <laughs> <laughs> yeah they they were like well i mean they won't mind because they're just getting some free installs and we'll have you know better trackable <laughs> metrics <laughs> I've never tried that. I've never heard that before. But now it's you know, you know it's getting my gears running. <laughs> well, you can keep that one for free if you use it. Let me know if it actually works. I've yeah. not tried it. The second thing that I jotted down as you were speaking was so so first step is okay. Let's start with these like high level metrics and let's think about things like. monetization and live ops from day 1 or day 0 mm-hmm. and then you know the second piece once you kind of get through that is thinking about your audience's like desires and expectations and things like that curious i've got like two questions here the first one is like how do you like pick an audience and once you've picked a rough audience like how do you actually learn what their desires and expectations are i assume that it should be more than just like looking at what games they're playing and then inferring okay. stuff yeah so uh let me give you an example all of this is going to be hypothetical of course let's say i'm building a cooking game right uh 
the naive <laughs> the very naive assumption is that a cooking game is going to be played by people who like cooking that is completely wrong when you look at it right when you look at what kind of play people play cooking it's actually a time management game and uh, it requires a specific type of personality to really relish playing time management games so once you find a couple of people who like these games you can go back and look at what they do on a day to day basis what their other hobbies are and that will give you a clear idea of like you know what kind of uh, you know aspirations and desires they have one beautiful thing that i think is being shut down now one beautiful thing was um, facebook analytics it could like you know once you acquire some of these players you can look at it and figure out what they like i mean facebook is a you know global machine where people go and declare what they like they just literally yeah. click the like button <laughs> so you tell them like you can look at them and figure out what they like what's their demographic composition like how old they are are they married are they single right uh, what kind of education they do they have and then you can like you know even uh, subdivide by country and go into each of these and like and what we do is we kind of uh, out of that we kind of derive these uh, personas usually three to maximum four different personas which are like you know which kind of are like the four nails that hold the map up right it's like uh, the four critical personas right they are a little stereotypical and defines almost all the players in there and the thing is we need to talk to these guys and really figure out what they what kind of people they are and you'll get a lot of uh, clues about what kind of uh, you know personalities they are so uh, one thing you would see for people who would uh, enjoy playing time management games is that a lot of people are into management uh, some people are like obsessive uh, list makers and uh, some of these guys have like you know uh, their calendars are like obsessively planned so that is one personal persona right the other one is like the uh, stay at home mom who just loves the action and right? she's an action player uh, she's an action game player she wants a rapidly moving gameplay but without any sort of violence or anything like cooking is something that she can totally identify with and this is thrilling there's a lot of time pressure and you're executing moves within that time pressure there's a lot of strategizing happening and she loves it so that becomes my second persona right so mm-hmm. talking to players combined with looking at demographic data that i can get from facebook analytics and uh, understanding what these players want to do in their real life right uh, sometimes like you know at one point for a game i was making i assumed it is like natural because uh, you know who wouldn't like leaderboards right uh, let's put leaderboards in there and then we talk to the players and they're like no i don't like to beat you and uh, we had like a very high percentage of women playing that game and all the women and they like to win together they like they don't want like men we i love heroes and games but that's not true for everybody because like i thought for a while like everybody likes like you know competing and beating but it wasn't true at least not for this persona when i talked to those guys i understood that they would rather win together than like you know win by beating somebody so mm. the leaderboard was a bad fit and so it's basically talking to players looking at whatever demographic information you can get but really talking to players uh as much as possible get on calls with them and talk to them like sending out questionnaires doesn't really work there is something i've learned that learned the hard way over the last year and a half <laughs> sending out questionnaires don't work at all yeah. I, i mean they do work but they don't work as well as like sitting down with a player and like you know chilling yeah. with them and having coffee with them because so, uh, a lot of different subtle uh, you know points come out mm. that really points you to like you know what kind of thing you need to make for them so Yeah there's a story if i have the time i can't tell me i can t- i cannot tell who told me the story but <laughs> they were they were working on a city management game and uh, they were thinking hey uh, you know something like city excel sort of a 
pain, right? Sin city, cities, excel sort of thing. And they're thinking, you know, what's what's uh, what's there in cities, right? Uh, how do you manage a city? You figure out where the resources go. You need to set up the power grid. There needs to be uh, roads. Okay, there needs to be maintenance. There needs to be, uh, and this is what they're thinking. And they had targeted these games towards women. So after a month of development, he goes and you know, asks women like, hey, what do you think about when you think about cities? And they're like, hey, restaurants, dates, right? Night outs. And he's like, what about the power grid? And she's like, what about the power grid? <laughs> it doesn't matter to them. <laughs> so the thing is, people perceive the same things in very different ways. So once you understand how people perceive their, you know, the world, then you can, uh, once you can get into their shoes, you can easily build for them. Yeah. I like that a lot. Yeah. So surveys generally probably aren't as useful as being able yeah. to actually get on the phone with someone, kind of get into their lives. It actually reminds me of a, a book I just read by, um, he's no longer there, but he was the uh, Procter & Gamble PNG's CEO for a while. Um, mm-hmm. And he was talking about how I think they like acquired or merged with Gillette who's like the, the mm-hmm. razor maker. Okay. And interestingly enough, uh, the story was about how they were wanting to get into India uh, with shavers. Okay. And uh, the guy that was co-writing with him, who was like in charge of strategy and innovation, um, was like, okay, this team that's designing the shaver needs to go to India and like uh-huh. you know, just live life alongside like the men that we're targeting for razors. And they were reticent. They're like, can't we just like look, you know, view some Indian men that live here in the US? And they're like, no, you've got to go to India. And so they sent them and they were there for like two or three weeks. And on the way back, the guy like sketched a design for the razor, which was basically what ended up going live and massively profitable and and (laughs) went off really well. Um, And so the one big difference that they observed is in the US where they were, you know, typically... Uh, designing stuff, most households and most guys when they're shaving have hot running water. Um, But a lot of the men that they observed in India had a cup of water. Um, And, you know, if you're trying to like unclog this razor with like five blades and it's just going to be like a miserable experience for you. And so they ended up designing a single blade razor that could easily be rinsed off, you know, within the context mm-hmm. of their daily lives. And it was massive. Like it took off blue away anything else that was there because it was, it fit what they needed. And they came back and they said, you know, I don't think we ever would have gotten this insight had we not actually yeah. observed it with our own eyes. Even if they'd you know, done the peripheral there in the U S you would have still probably seen guys shaving with hot water and, you know, it's easy to unclog a, you know, so it was just very, very interesting. So I, I love that. Like the closer you can actually get whether a phone call or a zoom line and you just pick up on lots of little like inferences on people's daily lives that you wouldn't really, um, pick up on uh, another <laughs> sort of thing that I, I thought was uh, super interesting. This was a different book. Um, and it was by the lady who took over like the hamburger helper brand for whoever owns that, uh, which is like a, a type of food. And at the time, it was kind of floundering in the US. They mm-hmm. had like 30 or 40 different variations of hamburger health per which is kind of like a pasta ish deal where you just like you buy it and then you like you brown a, a pound of beef and then you just like throw the noodles in and it's like you mm-hmm. know, ki- kind of easy, but kind of cooking. And and they went and they actually shadowed some moms <laughs> that were like trying to make dinner at home. And, you know, they're talking about this woman who's got like a kid on the hip and like right. another child running around screaming. <laughs> and it came down to it's like, well, you know, a lot of kids are picky and like the mom is lucky enough to find like 
one flavor that the kid will eat. Like they're not going to try 30 different flavors. If they try one, like we're just going to like, you know, go there. And so they, they had that insight of, Hey, let's, let's simplify this. We're just going to have like two flavors. Right. And that one change, <laughs> like one insight from just like observing the people in their regular life and accommodating to that, um, you know, reinvigorated the brand and it, you know, got back in line and, and grew really fast. But yeah, those, those little insights can be so key. The final thing that uh, I've been fascinated with lately is this idea of peripheral players. Let's say for today's sake, because I've been using Candy Crush a lot, I want to make some sort of match three casual type puzzle game. Talking to existing Candy Crush players may or may not be fruitful, but there's this idea of can I talk to players that are peripheral to Candy Crush? Either they don't play it or they have played it and they've churned to try to understand like what about it is fundamentally missing. Um, it's like, you know, you, I, I would assume that you could have done this with like uh, homescapes and gardenscapes where they came mm-hmm. in to understand that, I don't know, just progressing through levels just doesn't really feel meaningful. And so then they said, well, let's add this meta where you're like fixing things. So like, it feels like you have a little bit more of a purpose. And then I assume that, you know, Lily's garden could have come in and and taken that a little bit further by, you know, talking to the players that should have again been playing Gardenscapes or Candy Crush, but then weren't. And they're like, well, what's the point of just like fixing up this mansion or something? It doesn't feel like there's anything there. So, you know, now we layer on narrative and these stories that make the connections a little bit more real. And I I think there's like a stepwise sequence there, but like, you know, if I go to Candy Crush players, I would assume is largely females around age 30 or so. And then I go talk to a number of females that are age 30 that don't play Candy Crush. Why? Like, what isn't appealing to them? Like, why don't they like that type of game? Are there some insights there that I can glean to understand because chances are some people that are currently playing Candy Crush might even be suffering from that same problem, but they just are like, well, this is just how it is. And I just kind of have to live with it. And if you actually deliver something that solves that problem, they might be willing to, you know, come check out your game. But that that's kind of the peripheral idea. I don't know if that kind of makes sense. I have a, I have a take on that. Um, yeah. One thing is that, you know, um, okay, the, the fundamental principle is that, you know, design is a dialogue. You do things and you look at player feedback and you know and you iterate based on that the thing is while that said that said ford also said that you know uh, if while he was making his first car if he had went and asked the player what he wanted he would have asked for a faster horse mainly because uh, the the user is not a mechanical engineer he cannot perceive or think or imagine of all the amazing things a car could be right and if i ask if I go to a player, I went through this uh, just a month ago. That's why uh, I, if I go to a player and ask him, like, hey, you're playing this. What is the problem you're facing? And you know, uh, the, uh, the thing is, he'll be like, I'm bored. So why exactly are you bored? And then he's gone, right? He doesn't have the uh, articulation to like, kind of explain and uh, why he's bored. And he doesn't have the sort of thought process or the framework of thought to figure out what is going wrong. Right. So I will just throw some information at him. Like, is it frustration or is it boredom? Are you not in the zone? And he's like, okay, this is starting to sound like Greek to me. So what I kind of found was that I got some advice, like instead of asking people what they want, because they are not game designers, they cannot design uh, the game and give you an idea that you go and execute because you're the game designer. You come up with all the stuff. 
the players can't do this right so instead of asking them what they want try to ask them what their pain points are right that kind of worked for a while but we kind of realized that when people get bored with something and they put it down they don't have insight on why they got bored <laughs> right they're not doctors either they're not psychologists who can like go in and like examine their thoughts they cannot come back and say that you know what that pinch point was very tight i wish they gave me more coins i got frustrated so i left uh the best they can come back with is like you know it was very frustrating to so i quit and i'm like why was it frustrating i was on the same level over and over so i'm thinking okay maybe it was too difficult right maybe the fact is like you know it wasn't too difficult it was a you know economic crunch right he just needed they were trying to monetize he just needed a booster and he didn't get it right and the thing is you can't really get it out of the one thing though one thing though that does not lie is human behavior like if i make a you know a mock up of a game or do a quick prototype of a game right that i am proposing to i give it to him and i'm measuring analytics and i'm watching him play his the human behavior that he manifests within the game is always true right as long as he is not self conscious about somebody watching him play or anything so you could just give it to them and look at the data later right and you can look at uh, you can look at this and figure out if this is going to work on these guys and you get some information about are they angry with uh, you know candy crush are they bored of candy crush did yeah. they quit at level 1500 or level 200 or level 20 that kind of places them in a category and you give the your game to them or your quick prototype to them right just 10 levels that's all you need right 10 levels barely functioning you can just hack it together <laughs> and uh, put some analytics in there and see how they play within that optimally this is done when there is nobody watching and he doesn't feel like he owes you his attention or anything just give it to him and if he plays through the 10 levels and comes back like hey when are the next levels going to come through right then you're like oh this is this is good right so uh, that is the only true feedback you can get from the player is how they behave in it because even if you ask them questions or give them a questionnaire they'll always try to answer questions in such a way that they help you and that is not sometimes not always the truth sometimes uh, the truth that they want to tell you is like really harsh and they will just mellow it down so yeah. you know it's helpful but it does it becomes the opposite of helpful when they <laughs> mellow down the truth so i think the best way to really figure things out is to find these players understand them as much as possible and then test things on them very interesting. Well, I I hope this section has been helpful to people as they're thinking about how to approach things and stuff. But let let's assume now that we've gotten through step 1, we figured out roughly our CPI LTV plan. We figured out an audience need um and now we've gone through like the design and the prototyping and things and we're starting to think that hey, everything seems like it's lining up like it's going to work. What sort of tech am i going to need to fundamentally be able to like run these things so like things that potentially come into my mind would be like maybe some sort of uh social tech so that players can communicate within like their guilds um maybe leaderboards maybe not you know it depends on our insights um if it's some you know kind of pvp casual game maybe we or we want people to play together maybe we need some sort of matchmaking system uh, maybe we need some way to like schedule out and manage live ops um is that all the stuff like are there more things like i feel like there's a lot of tech behind the scenes that most people don't really realize that you need there and you know if if i need to like come up with a plan what should i be thinking about okay this is the order in which i would do things one is to have an mtp build out and mtp is the minimum testable product 
right? It's not the minimum viable product. Minimum viable product demands that it be a viable business. Uh, we're not going to like, you know, wait till we build a viable business to go live. We're going to build a minimum testable product. Okay. The idea was that uh, initial um, a year ago, if you ask somebody what a minimum testable product is, they'll, they'll talk about it. Like, at least there should be D1 uh, worth of gameplay and all that. I would say if there is three minutes of gameplay in it, go test it, right? So that being the case, let's say we're building the first three minutes of gameplay. We're just going to measure uh, the FTV funnel. Right. We want to see where people are journeying. We want to iterate the FTV, just the first three minutes of it. And we want to see what the content consumption rate is. We want to just out of curiosity to see how many people uh, come back on D1 anyways. Like you'll probably get 7% D1 at this rate, at <laughs> just three, three minutes of uh, content. But it's still good to look at. And then what you're going to do is the first critical thing that you put into place is analytics, right? You need player behavior and you need to have crashlytics in there so that your engineering team can start building the, you know, the culture of perfection, right? So you get both analytics in there, you get user attribution in there. So the first thing I would go for is get crashlytics in there. And I would either do Delta DNA or Amplitude, right? In the early phases, both of these things will give you a lot of uh, service in their free tier itself. I would sometimes do an, uh, both <laughs> just to see like, you know, which one fits better. Uh, <laughs> that and like, you know, in a month or two, I'll make a decision and start paying for it once we, you know, cross the yeah. free tier, right? And uh, beyond these two, I need to have uh, some sort of an attribution software right? Uh, at a, uh, that would be either Adjust or Affleck. These are the two that I usually use, right? I've heard that Singular is also pretty good. So once I have these three things down, I can do my MTP. So what this does is for the engineers, it tells them where it, where they're screwing up and all that. That That is an entirely different thing. Crashlytics is taking care of that, right? And for me, it tells me where in the FTV players are getting confused, where, where are they getting frustrated, where are they tapping on the wrong things, right? Where are they leaving? Um, and if uh, I have levels in the FTV, it'll tell me like, you know, which ones are too easy, which ones are frustrating, which ones are confusing. So I get to tuning that. And I also get a quick read on how fast players consume content. So when I say that the MVP needs to have D1 um, worth of content, I know how much content it's going to be, right? So, and uh, another thing is now that I have attribution and I'm acquiring players, now I can start uh, fine tuning my US strategy, right? Right from the day one, I can see which campaign is bringing in uh, better players, right? Better players in terms of like players that are engaging better, retaining through the FTV funnel better, right? We're not looking at day-wise retention, but just uh, we can see what players have higher intent by just looking at what kind of uh, cohorts are surviving through the FTV better. And so that gives you a lot of insight on what kind of players, so like, you know, it, it, we are already starting to do product market fit on, you know, and the thing is, if you do it right, you can have an MTP out within two months of uh, starting production, right? Pre-production and production together within two months, within eight weeks of it, six to eight weeks, you get your first MTP out, right? It's going to be embarrassing. It is supposed to be embarrassing. The MTP is something that you wouldn't want to show anybody, right? The founder of LinkedIn says that if the first release is not embarrassing, then you've waited too long. I forgot his name. <laughs> so that is what I believe in. So once you have these three things in place, right? Then you can start worrying about, uh, you know, what kind of uh, server-side stuff you want. Either you build it in-house or you uh, sign up for some backend as a service platforms, right? If you need multiplayer, if you need players, uh, player data storage. So that all comes later. And I've seen cases where, uh, you know, to get things out quickly, to get things out quickly so that we can test things quickly, you just sign up to a BAS and get things moving. And once... Uh, these things are working and you know exactly what the design of the product is going to be. You can just uh, build 
a parallel system in house which replaces the bas they can transfer your users there so that means that the effort invested into the back end stuff reduces because you already know exactly what you want to build uh, that is one thing and then while you approach live ops right as as you start approaching and the moment you start uh, you know talking about push notifications to improve retention to reactivate players and all that that is where you get into a situation where you can cohort players based on their data and send notifications i've used swerve in the past it's been amazing but it's pretty expensive <laughs> but uh, i think playfab also does a pretty good job i'm going to test that out so there are these services are very important because they will let you Uh, find cohorts and set up automated push notifications for various cases so you can do uh, churn prevention there you can do uh, reactivation if somebody is not been coming in you can trigger features specifically for them you can have a retention calendar activate on the daily rewards just for those guys you can have push notifications go out with rewards you can trigger features you can you can trigger sp- uh, specific mode unlocks right depending on what cohort your players feel falls into so if you see that there is a new cohort of group of players coming in from germany from since last week and these guys are like really high uh, engagement and you're like okay i want to open this pvp feature earlier for them right yeah. and you can if you've done your uh, you know configs properly on swerve you can actually have a logic put in there that you know sense of uh, push data which just unlocks pvp earlier for them okay so you can do a lot of stuff if you have online config if you have ab testing properly done and if you have uh, push notifications with now you can cohort and send push notifications automatically so once you have that you're pretty much good for live ops you can use the same tech to trigger events and all that this is the order in which i would go but the first thing is always crash analytics analytics and attribution <laughs> like doesn't yeah. matter <laughs> like these three go in first yeah that makes sense does So I, I've used uh, Amplitude for for analytics, and I actually kind of love Amplitude. But does Delta DNA give you enough? Because I've I've heard people kind of say it's very like high level uh, analytics in in Delta DNA compared to being able to like actually change and dig into things a little bit more with Amplitude. Like, does it get you there, or is it just kind of you need something good enough to get going, and you can always improve later? So um, let me give you my background. At, at one point, I needed to have. i was a control freak and i needed to have full control over the analytics and i needed to have full control over the data so i just built my own system which is apparently still in use is what i have heard <laughs> so we had this built out of aws ma and uh, redshift and uh, this was it's all custom code custom etl and like you know custom uh, code that automatically runs and pre aggregates and everything is like stored in tables and uh, we have these uh, how, what do you call it the uh, tableau uh, you know uh, these uh, sheets worksheets that you can go and access these data from so the thing is that is entirely hand coded that's all custom uh, sql coded and that is beautiful because i can build 100% of all the graphs i want right amplitude on the other hand without touching any code it will let me build 85% of all the graphs i want when you're building a uh, new product and you don't have the time to sit and code and all that right and the product changes a lot especially yep. in the first <laughs> month the product just changes a lot your data model is going to just uh, go all over the place right today you have progression the next week you don't right <laughs> you have pvp first instead so uh, all that can happen so at that time uh, amplitude is amazing and delta dna kind of falls in between both of these because delta dna can't answer more than like 35% of your questions without code but the thing is it does give you sql access so it's supposed to provided your 
willing to you know fight with sql it could potentially give you 100% of all the answers right but uh, i haven't dug much deeply into it i've been meaning to this product that i'm working on i'm going to explore uh, delta dna also and I, there's a very good probability that i might end up deploying delta dna i'm never going to build my own system again <laughs> that is very <laughs> too much pain but the thing is uh, because we built it ourselves it became very cheap to operate now that time in the studio it was necessary because like uh, i was trying to get people to start using analytics and um, build products in a data driven manner and while people don't believe in it completely it is very hard to get funding for this so it was just build it in house demonstrate value and then graduate to something bigger and then we ended up just married to that system for a long time <laughs> it's hard like once you built something like yeah. internally and it like everything centered around it it's like the cost and the risk it's and working because it's working but you know all of it works so you love it <laughs> <laughs> so like it works and the thing is whatever you need you can just build it like you can just go in half an hour of coding and it's there right yeah. so if you want something that uh, want some sort of a graph that uh, amplitude doesn't have uh, you really can't do anything about it the thing is amplitude does answer like you know almost all of the problems <laughs> if it's just enough but it's expensive like uh, if you have funding i think that is the, that is a primary choice like that is my choice number one still well i i know we're about out of time here so i have the last question which i always mm-hmm. ask because it is the master and retention podcast of course okay. um which is uh you know what's uh one tip or trick or lesson that you've learned over the years to help increase uh, retention you know is there anything you've learned that helps to keep players around for longer so this might sound odd but the the standard definition of churn is that you know players didn't come back to your game for n days and the value of n changes depending on what studio and what kind of product you're talking about right anything from 10 to 30 here's a new um, definition of retention player has churned from your game when he has stopped thinking about you like if you if he stops playing but he's still going on facebook and he's seeing your content he's still going on instagram and seeing your reels right is still in the foreground of his mind and it's not he's not properly churned right? mm-hmm. social media is also where your game lives and the thing is when you have new content new events you can always activate them back and the thing is when you talk think about social media strategy and community management as a retention activity and as a, as a source of reactivation right so then you uh, and then you have to stop thinking about um, you know churn as like he has stopped playing so he has churned he hasn't churned he's is in social media he's there and uh, yeah we can't really reach people on email and all that but you can always reach them through instagram and uh, facebook and all that and i've seen um, uh, for, for a game that i ran i saw that we had a big cohort of super elder players who would just reactivate whenever we had like content releasing they would come come in and like consume the content faster than anybody and they would just go into another you know, the dormant state they haven't turned they wouldn't and the next piece of content would go out in 45 days because we couldn't ship any faster and they would just come back so they weren't actually churned all of these guys came back monetized consumed through the entire thing and they would just disappear and uh, that is glorious like once you think about that uh, and once you figure out what can reactivate those guys right and mm-hmm. what can keep them engaged that can like you know really take you places and so uh, just thinking about it in that in that manner then live ops is not just something that happens inside your game it's something that happens on instagram and facebook tiktok and everywhere i love that 
Well, thank you so much, Peter. Uh, this has been a real pleasure. Uh, if folks do have any questions for you or about uh, the new company or anything, is there a good way for them to get in contact with you? Yeah, just mail me at uh, peter at sarpie.com. It's x-a-r-p-i-e.com. Or just find me on LinkedIn. I'm there. P-A-W-N. <laughs> peter, P-A-W-N. And it's awesome. okay if you call me Peter Pan. Everybody does that. <laughs> 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 Nobody can pronounce my name for some reason. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much. Hopefully we'll be able to, to chat again and, and maybe, you know, we'll come back in a year or so and hear about how you guys are taking over the world with your uh, new game. Awesome. Yeah. This was fun. All this right. Was we'll time. talk soon.